It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, what am I doing with what God has given me? Coming up in this episode, did you ever really think about what Jesus requires of you? We know we are supposed to love him, ask forgiveness for our sins, and live a godly life. Turns out, there is much more to it than that. In one of his parables, Jesus revealed just how much effort he requires of us. Here's a hint, it's not easy. Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Hey brother, good to be with you. (laughs) Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Matthew 25, 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. As Christians, we are truly blessed. Having given our lives to Jesus, we are assured that all of our experiences are overruled for our best benefit. This is not to imply that we can just coast along as though we were given a ticket for some magical ride to heaven riding on fluffy clouds of comfort. On the contrary, being a Christian is hard. We are expected to work in the service of God through Jesus on a regular, daily basis. We are also expected to be accountable for what we do or don't do. In the parable of the talents, Jesus shows us that we're given specific work to do for him and that we have exactly what we need to get the job done. So the question to ask ourselves is, how am I doing? What godly things have I been given to do and am I daily working at accomplishing them. The parable of the talents is taught in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So let's tell the basic story. A master is traveling to a faraway place. He gathers his servants to him and gives them each a large sum of money to work with while he is gone. Upon his return, he demands an accounting of their activity in his absence. To those who have worked profitably, he doles out a generous reward. And to those who have not, he doles out a punishment. So it's a pretty basic, straightforward story, but has profound meaning. So we want to ask a question. Why did Jesus speak this particular parable? So the next scripture we're going to look at starts with the last line of the ten virgins parable, which is the parable preceding. So Jonathan, when we go through to Matthew 25, 13 and 14, verse 13 is ending the ten virgins parable, and verse 14 is beginning the talents parable. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So the context of our story and the other parables in this context point to the return of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. All these parables set the stage to illustrate, and here's the key, to illustrate the required actions on the part of Jesus' true disciples while Jesus would not be personally present to guide them. So he's saying, I'm leaving. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be in heaven. You're not going to have me with you. Here's what my expectations are. So let's begin the story. And Jonathan, I know you read verse 14, but let's begin the story with Matthew 25, 14. 
For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So in the parable, the man going away is Jesus. And we know that implicitly because all of the context of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the two chapters, point to that symbolism. So that's easy to determine. So the question we want to ask is, who are these slaves? Well, the answer is they're Jesus' footstep followers. Let's take a look at that. First, Jonathan, let's define the word for slaves here. Well, it means a slave, literal or figurative, involuntary or voluntary. You know, Rick, when we hear the word slave, we often think of someone bound in chains who has no choice. But in the case of the parable of the talents, it means voluntary servitude on behalf of those that accept the call of God and commit to following in his son's footsteps. And we're reminded in Scripture that there's indentured servitude, where, where people would, would voluntarily go and work for somebody, often for their life, and they would commit themselves to that master, and that would be a relationship that would work out. So it's very different than slave in our world, in our age, that we're used to. And there was actually, it's, it's much a much higher standing, as we will see in this particular parable. So a good example of these slaves being representative of Jesus' followers comes in Jesus' own words in John chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus in this John 13 scripture is using the same word for slave, the exact same word to describe his followers. So it's a very easy conclusion to say he's talking about his followers. So he's leaving and his followers are these slaves. Now, what happens in this parable? Well, it says he entrusted his possessions to them. The master literally hands his wealth over to these individuals. What that tells you is they must be trustworthy. So you got to ask the question, what wealth? In terms of Christianity, what wealth did Jesus hand over? Well, Jonathan, there's going to be three pieces that we want to look at. Let's look at the first one, and it be defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward's that one be found trustworthy. So it talks about being stewards of the mysteries of God. So the gospel is part of the wealth that we look at as handed over to the true church. And we must take care, Rick, of the good news. Preserve its original meaning so Satan doesn't come in and twist it. Remember, it's good news of great joy to all people, not just believers. Yeah, and you know what? And good news of great joy to all people and preserving the original meaning according to Scripture. Let's try to forget the traditions and let's focus only on what the Scriptures teach. So the gospel is part of this wealth. Well, in, in this verse, Jonathan, it talks about being a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward was a slave who took care of their master's goods as if they were their own. Let, let's go to the definition of this because this is fascinating. It's a house distributor that is a manager or an overseer, an employee in that capacity, by extension, a fiscal agent like a treasurer, figuratively a preacher of the gospel. So you have some very strong 
sense of responsibility. So that's the first part. So let's further the question of what wealth are we talking about? Jonathan, let's go to 1 Corinthians six nineteen, And this is from the King James Version. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Okay, ye are not your own. So the second piece here that we want to look at is our growth and our development in Christ is also part of the Master's wealth. So we and what we become is part of the Master's wealth. Well, since we are His, Christ's likeness should be seen within us as we develop the fruits of the Spirit. Well, it should be. And if it's not, we're going to have to ask ourselves, hey, what's happening here? Or rather, what's not happening here? So we've got the gospel as part, and we've got our own growth and development as part of the master's wealth. And so, you know, as as we go forward with this, we want to just truly understand how important these things are. And there's one more. Remember, our fellowship, our, our fellow disciples, rather, are also part of the master's wealth. They're also part of Jesus' wealth. That's the third piece. We should wash one another's feet. So we need to respect, assist, and value the brotherhood. Do we work as a team, shoulder to shoulder? If not, we're missing the mark. Yeah, so when we look at the master's wealth then in this, in this parable, what we're applying it to, again, is three different things. And this is important to understand all that Jesus puts in our responsibility. The gospel is part of the master's wealth that he turns over to these slaves or these servants as their responsibility. The growth and development of each individual is part of the master's wealth because these are the called out of Jesus. And then taking care of one another is part of the master's wealth. We don't want to leave any of those things out. So Jesus, in this parable, as he's going away, is turning over a a great piece of of what he's leaving behind. Everything is now in the hands of these servants. So, uh, Jonathan, let's let's take a look in, in terms of that. Uh, the master figuratively placed his wealth into the hands of his servants, as we said. As God placed a staff in Moses' hand way back in the Old Testament. Now, Moses was holding the staff, and God essentially, well, I'll let you read the scripture. Exodus chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And Rick, uh, after our master put these three things in our hands, what was he saying? He was saying, make these things grow, go to work, teach the good news, develop Christ-likeness, develop special bonds with the brotherhood. So we have a lot going on here that really is going to help us to see something bigger. Jonathan, we want to tell a story, a a, a true story, a real-life true story of a Christian family that we know of in our day. And we're we're going to hear this story through Val. She is a Christian Questions contributor, has contributed to programs before. And when she saw this particular uh, program coming up, this particular episode on on the, uh, the talents, it was something that she had been really, really thinking about. So she kind of sent us her story and said, hey, this has been an experience of mine. And we thought, wow, this has really got a really good, good basis for us to look at. What does it mean that, you know, God is giving us things and what am I doing with what God has given me? So we're going to first soundbite here. We're going to listen to Val sort of introduce herself and, and where she's starting as this story will unfold. After working in the corporate world, then being a stay-at-home mom for two years, I had the opportunity to get my certification as an athletic coach, my dream job. 
For the next 25 years, I was able to teach and coach athletics in public and Christian schools. In this case, what was in my hand wasn't a shepherd's staff, but running shoes, volleyballs, and whatever else was in those physical education closets. I was given the opportunity to coach and train wonderful student athletes. But even better, we used our time together for inspirational character building time, Bible discussions, and prayer. God was so faithful to help me keep looking at what he had put in my hand. You know, it's interesting. She talks about the fact that God was faithful in helping her to understand what had been put in her hand. That's a key thought as we go through this parable. So that's a little bit of Val's background. We're going to expand on her story uh, as we go through today's podcast. So Jonathan, let's continue with our story. Let's go to Matthew 25, verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And we w- and he went on his journey. Well, Rick, how much was a talent worth? Well, that's an interesting and important question. Uh, I don't know the answer for sure, <laughs> but there are many, many thoughts on this. So I'm gonna, we're going to pick one common thought that is actually a very high-value definition. There are values that fluctuate dramatically with this. We got this from the Greek-English lexicon, and what we did is took what they said and then we put it into today's world. In the Greek-English lexicon, it said that a talent is worth 6,000 drachma. Well, what does that mean? Well, one drachma was a day's pay for a laborer. So let's figure it out. In those days, you worked six days a week. You worked six days a week times 52 weeks means you would earn in a year 312 drachma. One talent then, therefore, is worth over 19 years of labor. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, you're thinking about that, and like from the standpoint of a laborer, you say, wow, that's a lot. Put it, let's put numbers to it. If a laborer in today's market conservatively made $12 an hour, and that would equal about $25,000 a year, you multiply that by 19 years and you get $475,000. Therefore, now this may not be the right interpretation of talent, but we're just using it for an illustration. According to this generous method of calculating, the master turned over almost four million of today's dollars to these servants. The point is the master turned over his wealth and it was incredibly valuable. And that helps us to understand its value. And here's the thing. And Jonathan, you read in, in, in Matthew 25, 15, he gave one uh, servant five talents, another two and another one. So he handed over his wealth in an uneven fashion. Uh, and hold on, Rick. You know, that doesn't sound fair. Why would he do it that way? One well, receive five, the next two, and the last only one. Well, he's specifically focusing on each one being able to handle whatever they could according to their ability. Now, that's an important aspect of this story. What does it mean to handle it according to their ability, according to the Greek-English lexicon? Well, it means strength, power, ability, inherent power, power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. Well, so there are two points here in our lesson. One, the master knows them well, and two, he has great confidence in what he knows about them. Exactly. So it's according to their ability. So it's not uneven. So here's what we know so far. Jesus is teaching his followers about what they will be responsible for in his physical absence. Secondly, he hands over his wealth to them all, the value and responsibility of Christianity and the gospel. Third, he apportions the weight of responsibility according to the readiness and maturity of each one. And lastly, he exhibits implicit trust 
in these servants immediately leaves the country and his wealth in their hands. So the master is saying, I trust you, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's almost shocking. Wait, 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 wait. There's no, there's no planning session. What did you want me to do? Nope, sorry, I'm going. So you do have that very strong, strong trust exhibited here. So Jonathan, as we wrap up this introduction, we want to look at taking on the task of managing and growing talents. What do we have? True Christians have been entrusted with the sacred and powerful value of expanding and representing the gospel of Jesus, personally maturing in Christ and caring for the body of Christ. These responsibilities and privileges can't be taken lightly. They are serious, serious responsibilities and privileges. And suddenly, this story of servants managing their master's goods in his absence, it looks a whole lot more serious than before. So the storyline is set, and it's time to go to work. What opportunities and pitfalls lie ahead? Well, the key factor to remember going forward is that each servant is given a very large sum of money according to their own personal ability. Expectations would therefore be higher for the one given the most and lower for those given less. The point is everyone rightfully had expectations placed upon them. No matter who they were, they were expected and trusted to do the work that was put before them. And Jonathan, what we see in this parable is that there are two types of activity and two types of attitudes that are displayed once the master is left and his servants are on their own. And that's shown to us in Matthew 25, verses 16 to 18, as we continue the parable. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. So first we have the working portion trading and going to work and and getting things done. Verse 18 shows a different story. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Okay, very, very different approaches here. So there's two comparisons we want to do. First is an attitude comparison, all right? There is a subtle difference in the way those who prospered responded and those who didn't prosper responded. So We've got two groups. We have the five and two talent servants, and then we've got the one talent servant. The five and two talent servants, the scripture says they immediately went. All right, Jonathan, back to the Greek-English lexicon. What does that mean? To lead over, carry over, transfer, to pursue the journey on which one has entered, to continue on one's journey. So, Rick, they got right to work. And that's the point. They got right to work, you know, and it, it, it... in, 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 in a lot of the scriptures, the word immediate doesn't appear, but it's implied by the definition of the word. And this is important. These had an urgent, focused, goal-driven attitude. That's what the word tells us. That, you know, they were on a journey, they were continuing, they were leading, they had to go. The master had a clear expectation, and they knew that expectation needed to be met. So what am I going to do? I'm going to work. On the other side of the ledger... We have the one talent ser- servant who simply, the scripture says, went away. All right, Jonathan, Greek English lexicon, what does that mean? To go away, depart. To go away in order to follow anyone, go after him, to follow his party, follow him as a leader. Well, Rick, with this definition, there's no urgency. Yeah, there's almost like a wandering 
feeling like, yeah, I'll go, well, maybe, uh, you know, I could, uh, well, maybe, I'm not sure. There's, there's just, you're right, there's, there's no urgency. This servant had a lax attitude of defeat and self-preservation. Though he was capable, because the master knew he was capable, he chose to respond to the master's expectation with minimal effort. This plays out in a big way as this parable unfolds. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is my attitude regarding what I am called upon to do every day? What's my attitude? Do I look at it with a, well, if only I could do that instead? Or, or uh, do, do, I see the, um, do I see the daily grind of my life as a waste? Or do I see it as an opportunity? Am I wishing to be on the, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? Well, the, the talents are always better, you know, when they're in somebody else's hands. I don't know. It's just, what am I wishing for? We're going to go back to our story, Val's story. And this part of the story is going to be about her dad. And uh, Jonathan, you and I knew her dad before he passed away. Yes. Very faithful Christian. This story tells a part of his life that I never knew. And frankly, it is, it is, it brought tears to my eyes the first time I heard it because it is such a touching story of someone trying really hard to always do what was put in front of him, even when he became much more feeble. Let's listen. Watching my parents age and become, quote, less useful in their own eyes made me become a coach or encourager of a new generation. It was time to let go of the job opportunities God had given me in teaching and coaching youth and move into a caregiving role for my elderly parents. What I learned was that God had used my past experiences to help me navigate this new season of life. My dad was always fit, active, encouraging to others, always willing to lend a hand no matter what needed to be done, and above all, a strong Christ-like man. As he got into his late 80s and early 90s, his body began to fail him and he felt pretty useless. It was heartbreaking for an adoring daughter to watch. One day, he asked me to go to the hobby store and pick up a number of things for him. Come to find out, he had heard about an elderly woman who knitted hats for children in cancer hospitals. She had done hundreds. He said to me, you know, I can learn to do something like that since I can't move around very well anymore. By the time my dad passed away at 93, he had knitted over 75 hats. Most of the hats went to a preschool that his granddaughter worked at in Indiana. He blessed the little ones from infant to four years old with what some of their parents called a hat from Grandpa Art. He didn't quite understand why the recipients of his hats thought they were so special. I explained to him that a lot of those kids didn't have grandparents or even parents who would take the time to pass along such a blessing like that. And you know, you just have to sit back and realize that someone who had such incredible opportunity and activity in their life when they're in their, in their, in their elder years and can't do it, he found something else, some other way to express love for his fellow human beings. Just a, What a wonderful example. It is. It wonderful is. It's, it's touching, and it makes me think about, okay, if you're not able to do this, well, what are you able to do? And it really opens the door, and it fits so well with this parable of the talents. So very thrilled to have this. So, so for, for the true Christian, the opportunities to serve our master come through our daily experiences and not instead of our daily experiences. And art proved that. We can choose to observe, engage, and learn spiritually, 
or we can choose to observe, shut down, and wish for spirituality. I mean, it's a choice, and that's what the parable is telling us. It's a choice. So we saw the attitude comparison of get right to work or kind of wander around aimlessly. The second is the effort comparison between the five and two talent servant and servants and the one talent servant. So let's look at the five talent and two talent servants who were said to go to work. And we, we talked about what that means. And it means, and they traded with their opportunity. So Jonathan, back to defining, what does it mean that they traded? It means to toil, affect, be engaged in or with, to work, labor, to make gains by trading, do business. Well, Rick, what did Jesus say at age 12? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? At 12 years old, Jesus is talking about being about his father's business. You know, as a child, it gives us a sense of the responsibility that he knew he had and the responsibility we should know that we have as well. It really is, it's quite amazing. So those individuals toiled. They worked continually to fulfill their master's expectations. And here's what happened. They lived the trust that he had put in them. They lived that trust. Well, do I live the trust God has in me every day? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. What am I doing with what God has given me? That's essentially the question that we're looking at. So we see those who toiled, who worked every day to accomplish what the master expected of them. Now let's go to the other side of the ledger, and we're going to see the one talent servant. What did he do? Well, he dug a hole and buried his opportunity to serve the master in the earth instead of engaging in the toil necessary to please the master. Instead of doing that, he chose to soil, and yes, this is a play on words, he chose to soil his opportunity by covering it with dirt. He covered it with soil. Instead of toiling, he soiled it. His actions violated the master's trust as he made no effort to fulfill the expectations his master knew that he was capable of fulfilling. And Rick, he was focused on earthly things, you know, burying them in the dirt, in the earth. And, and we have to be careful. We don't do that, Rick. Yeah, and, and we're going to develop that thought because that's a very powerful thought. He buried it in the earth. He's focused on earthly things. So that develops as we go. The toil is to be diligently attentive for the duration of the task. That's what it means to toil. This is exampled to us by many in the New Testament, including those we don't know a lot about. And Jonathan, this is an interesting exercise that we don't often do. Look for the names of Christians you don't know a lot about and try to fill in the blanks about their faithfulness. We got, we've got two scriptures to give us examples. Let's start with Acts 16, verses 14 to 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, as she prevailed upon us. So the idea that you have the apostle, you know, moving forward and doing all of his work, and this woman, Lydia, is, is basically a devout follower of Christ, and she wants to be his hospitable. And she says, if you deem me faithful, come stay with me. I want to provide for your needs. I want to give you the best that I can give you so you can do your work. 
It's a wonderful example of somebody you don't think about very much. Let's look at some other examples. In the next scripture in Romans, Paul names many who are toiling, working every day to fulfill the master's expectations. Romans 16, 21 to 23. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertus, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aristus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. So you have all of these names, and when you think about it, the apostle is mentioning all of these names to bring their presence into the presence of those that he's writing to. In other words, I want you to meet these faithful brethren. They are helping me. They are doing their part. They are toiling in the gospel. We don't know anything about them, except that they were being faithful, except that they were servants that were given talents, and they went to work with them. So that's a powerful, powerful example. On the other side, to bury the talent in the soil is to rationalize, act minimally, and then be idle. Again, we look to examples in, in the New Testament, and one sad example of this type of reaction is, is an, a follower called Demas. He's mentioned several times in Paul's writings, in, in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24, and he is mentioned also as a co-laborer with Paul. Paul trusted him, so we believe that Jesus trusted in him. Yet at the end of Paul's life, here's what the apostle writes about him in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 10. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Well, here's another example, like we talked about a, um, a minute ago, Rick. Demas loved this world more than a spiritual focus. As it says in Galatians 6, 9, don't become weary in well-doing. In other words, don't stop toiling. And, you know, that, that's a really good example. And, and it, it sounds like he did become weary because he's been helping the apostle for a very long time. At the end of his life, it's like he gives up. And maybe, maybe I don't know, but maybe he's looking at the, Paul's conditions like you're old, you're dying, and you're imprisoned. All that we've done, is this what it comes to? And he just lost his focus, and the, the interest of the world drew him away. Very much just like that, 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 that one-talent servant that buried that talent in the earth. So we can see the difficulty that we can run into of losing that zeal like you just talked about. So wrapping this portion up of, of the story about who gets what and why and, and the attitudes and, and the desire to work, taking on the task of managing and growing talents, what do we have? The labor of the true followers of Christ throughout the age is to be engaged in the work of developing according to their ability what the master has given them. The end result is to be fully exercised in the work of Christ. That's the key. We are to be fully exercised in the work of Christ. Make no mistake, it takes effort. So you think about it, there's a lifetime of work involved in doing the work that Jesus trusts us to do. So never stop reviewing, adjusting, and never stop working. None of our actions and attitudes can escape accountability before Christ. So how did the toilers do? Okay, the toilers. The whole point of this parable was to illustrate that Jesus was trusting all aspects of his mission, all of them to his faithful followers. While the responsibility is immense, 
it is not without the assurance that these followers are fully capable of accomplishing the mission. And as we soon will see, faithfulness to Jesus' expectations brings blessed rewards. The responsibility Jesus gives us may seem overwhelming at times, but it is given based on our ability. He won't give us more than we can handle. And that's such an important point. He will not. That's what this parable is about. It's about each according to his ability. So let's continue the story. We know what they were given, and we know what they did. All right, now we're moving on, and now comes a whole different part of the story. Matthew 25, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Okay, time for accountability. Here, Jesus hints that his return and the following kingdom were not on the immediate horizon. This gives us the sense that what Jesus expects of us is not some little work or some focused period of time. Rather, his expectation spans our very lifetime. I'm saved. Oh, good. I'm going to heaven. No, no, no. (laughs) It's more than that. I'm saved. Good. Now go to work and stay working until the day you die. That's what it comes down to, Rick. It is. And, you know, when you look at it that way, you say, well, that's that's tough. Yes, it is. But, you know, Jonathan, the previous two podcasts we did were about the, the Beatitudes, blessed and blessed and blessed. And you saw how rich the blessing is in this life, not to mention the next life. So, but it does come down to going to work. So this is accountability now. When we stand accountable before Christ, there's no longer time for second guessing. At that point, okay, no more time. There's no time for regret or there's no time for do-overs. The reality of what our lives have produced is now cast in stone. So let's look at how these three servants handled their accountability. We're going to start with Matthew 25, 20, and this is the one who was given five talents. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. That's awesome. The servant produced 100% growth. His saying, I have produced this growth, is not a prideful statement. Rather, it's a factual accounting. Basically, the, the, the servant is saying, you expected me to do the work, and I did, and here's the result. The Apostle Paul understood the effort and the discipline to see his Christian development all the way through, and that's illustrated in this five-talent individual. Let's look at, at, at the Apostle Paul's own example in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Rick, he is serious. If Paul was worried about his faithfulness, how much more should we be? And, and you're right. And, and he's very, very intent on saying, just because I have done this or done that doesn't mean I'm in. It means that I'm on the right track. And I cannot stop keeping my body under. I cannot stop focusing on moving forward, on making the talents that I have been given to grow. That's what he's really saying here. So we've got this five-talent servant. And I want to give a Rick opinion here. 
I, I think that there are very, very few of us who would fit this five-talent servant picture. I think the Apostle Paul fits it very well. The, all of the apostles, as a matter of fact, I think fit it. These individuals and their abilities are so trusted by Jesus that they are given much more to be responsible for than all others. So I think this is a rarefied uh, grouping here that I look up to and say, wow, I'm almost relieved that I'm not in that group because that's way too much for me. And But we see that according to their ability, and that's a wonderful thing. Well, you know, talking about the five-talented servant, I guess the question, what will I do with what God has given me if I am a five-talented servant? And, you know, you have to ask that question, and the idea, and, and the answer has to be God, or Jesus, rather, has given me a great portion of his wealth to manage. I have got to work hard because it's a big responsibility to manage a big portion of his, and we'll use a, a modern word, of his portfolio, okay? There's a lot going on here. I have to be on it, and probably there's a lot of delegation involved in there. There's all kinds of things that happen to, to make it go. What would I do if I was that five-talent servant? I'm given all of this responsibility, all this opportunity. How do I handle it? So important question that we have to ask ourselves, and we'll come back to that question with each one. The, parable, the parable's accountability continues with the master's response and reward for faithfulness. So now we had the report of the five-talent uh, servant, and here's the master's response in Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, think about it. Well done. Your focus, your discipline, and fortitude produced a 100% return. And it says in the scripture, you were faithful in a few things. A, a few things? <laughs> what? How, how about a major portion of the master's wealth? I mean, think about it because he said, the parable says, he gave them his wealth. He turned it over to them. And you can see how Jesus is comparing the smallness of our earthly walk with the grandeur of the heavenly reward. The Apostle Paul understood that as well. The Apostle Paul looked forward to the joy of his Lord, and that's what the Master says, enter into the joy of your Master. Let's look at the Apostle Paul's yearning for that in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, the privilege of being given a crown of righteousness is beyond human comprehension. And this is what is meant by enter into the joy of your master. Now, imagine being resurrected and the Lord Jesus is waiting for you. And, and then he says, come with me. I want to introduce you to our father. What joy. I can't, joy. I, can't, I, can't even, I can't even get my head around the first part of that, never mind the end. It's just, it's so big. And, you know, you think, oh, they are his slaves. And yet look at this beautiful, wonderful treatment because they had the ability, they were chosen for this responsibility. 
So you've got that five-talent servant entering the joy of his Lord because he produced five more talents. Let's look at the two-talent servant in the next line uh, uh, for accountability. So he's next in line, and here he comes, Matthew 25, verses 22 to 23. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And again, I want to insert a Rick opinion here. Here, as a two-talent servant, is where I, I think many of faithful ones fit in. They've got opportunities, they've got, they've got talents, they've got abilities, they have uh, the right kind of attitude, and, they, and, 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 and the Lord trusts them, not as big as the others, but he trusts them to the extent of what they're capable of. And now notice the similarity between the two and five-talent servants. This servant, this two-talent servant, also produced 100% growth. His saying that I've produced this growth was also not a prideful statement, rather it was a factual accounting. Again, he says to the master, basically, you expected me to work, and I did, and here is the result. And this servant did as much as the five-talented servant because he did what was expected of him. And that's the beauty of this. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul to be fully 100% faithful. And I don't know about you, Jonathan, but I am very relieved. <laughs> me too, brother. Me too. <laughs> You know, you don't have to be that other person that you look at and say, I could never be like them. That's not the point. You be faithful according to your ability. And this servant also received the same reward of entering into the joy of his master. Bottom line, he was just as faithful, even with fewer abilities. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful example. There is power in knowing that we're not expected to do or be more than we're capable of. And Jonathan, as we started to see the story of Art, Val's dad, sometimes our capacity goes down with time. Here's one of the great lessons from Art, Val's dad, and knitting those hats for those children. I remembered what it felt like for some of my athletes to think that their best efforts weren't enough. It was time for me to remind my dad that God honors what you do to be a blessing, no matter how small you think it is. Getting to church was getting harder for my dad at the end of his life. He had been an elder for over 50 years and very active in teaching and leading. I had watched him make a conscious decision to never stop learning more about God in the scriptures, even though his capacity for retaining information wasn't what it used to be. Because he always had his Bible and study materials out, the healthcare workers who came to the house asked questions and loved to talk to him about what he was working on. In his mind, his talents weren't what they used to be. Maybe not but God was still using him to bring light and hope to the world. Psalm 71, 17 and 18 says, O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those to come. So you think about that and you realize our best efforts are enough because it's according to our ability that we're given the things to take care of for Jesus, and that's all we're expected to do. Focusing on the two-talented servant, what will I do 
with what God has given me if I am a too talented servant. And again, this description fits a whole lot more of us. So folks, when we look at this, if you have that that opportunities and abilities that are that maybe are 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 more uh, plain than with other individuals, the question you have to ask yourself is, well, what am I doing with it? Am I toiling every day to meet the master's expectations of me? Not necessarily in earthly things, but in heavenly things and using whatever I have toward the heavenly work. Rick, we have to be careful not to compare ourselves to others who are more talented than we are. That could cause discouragement and make us want to give up. Now, discouragement is one of Satan's biggest tools. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, the other other side of that is not only would it cause discouragement in us, but if, if I'm, I'm sitting by you, Jonathan, I say, you know what, I could never be like you, Jonathan, and, you know, you're so good in God's service and I just, I just can't keep up. I could be feeding you the wrong kind of, of ego trip that you don't need either. So it can discourage right. both, me. Both ways, yeah. Right. And so we have to be careful. It's not about comparison. It's about working according to our ability. That's the story. That's the parable. That's the lesson. This parable reminds us of the tenacity that we have to put into managing and growing the talents that we are given. It's helpful to remember the tenacity, sacrifice, and faithfulness that Jesus already put into us long before we knew what, we, what was happening. Jonathan, long before we were born. Here's the tenacity that Jesus put into us. Here's his protectiveness of us, Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Rick, there is one thing that can separate us from the love of Christ, and that's ourselves. And that's what we're seeing in the parable of the talents. Do we work according to the ability that, that Jesus knows we have? Or do we say, well, I'm not sure, and I've got other things, and, you know, there's too many, life is, and I, if, if only, I, you, we have to be clear. We have to be focused. So wrapping this portion up, taking on the task of managing and growing talents, what do we have? Focusing on managing and growing what Jesus has given us is a challenging and lifelong task. Fortunately, we're only accountable before our Lord for what we are capable of doing and for how we are capable of changing, all with the help of God's Spirit. This is hard, but it is most certainly doable. It's hard, but it can be done because Jesus told us that's the way it works, period. So even though we feel the pressure to do Jesus' work, we are relieved from the pressure of unrealistic expectations. We have seen the blessings of fulfilling Jesus' expectations. What comes to us when we don't? Ah, such a question can make Jesus seem to be harsh, but nothing could be further from the truth. As we will see from our parable, Jesus can, can be made to look mean, but in fact, he is clear in his love and justice in whatever he requires of us. Our job, it's simple. 
our job is to live up to what we have promised him as his disciples. That's our job. Live up to what we have promised him, and he will expect what we're capable of. It's a very clear balance. Here's where we run into trouble. The accountability in the parable continues with the one-talent servant. Notice how he begins his report. Matthew 25, verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Oh, Rick, this is bad. <laughs> yeah. this is, he was reversing the responsibility by blaming his master. Yeah, so he doesn't come up and say, here's what I did. He says, you know, master, sit down, take a breath. I need to t- tell you about you. I, you know, it, it's <laughs> oh, just, it's, it, it, you're right. It's bad. It's all backwards. The servant saw his master through eyes of blame and harshness. And in his own mind, he justified his own inactivity, his own violation of doing that which he was commissioned to do. Instead of owning his responsibility, this servant chose to engage in three actions that are the opposite of responsibility. The first action was, like you said, blaming others. Yeah, he said, Master, you are a hard man. Right. We blame when we feel inferior. He had one talent, the others had two and five. Inadequate, fear, fearful, jealous, doubtful, guilty, and so forth. We blame perhaps our church, our ministers, our family, our boss, or even the Lord. Like in this case, we blame away our personal responsibility. And that's what's being shown here. Let's go to the next piece of what, what the, uh, the, the one-talent servant, because he's not done explaining himself yet. Matthew, Matthew 25, verse 25. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So he started out by blaming others, specifically his master, and then he goes to the second point of lack of responsibility, and that's excuses. Yeah, he said, I was afraid. You know, it's easy to excuse away our failure to make spiritual progress. If things go poorly, you know what? It's always someone or something else or where we live or the circumstances weren't right or we just can't catch a break or the sun wasn't shining that day or if only my pencil point didn't break or I lost the paper or the dog ate my homework or whatever it is, there's just some kind of excuse to get in the way, in this case, fear. And not only can we rationalize our inabilities, but Satan can reinforce our doubts and fears so we don't make progress. Yeah, that's the thing. You start down that road, and what you're doing is you're walking down a road where Satan is like, hey, buddy, come on this way. You're right. It's really too tough. He really is too hard and just takes us, and he can ruin us because we allow him to. So we've got blaming others. We've got excuses. The third lack of responsibility uh, portion here is he focused on the problem rather than the solution. And he said, I went away and hid your talent in the ground. So basically what happens here by focusing on the problem rather than the solution is we don't even try. Instead, we talk about and dwell on the problem. Now, now think about this, Jonathan. He probably thought about that buried talent every day and continually convinced himself that he was okay. No, no, it just needs to be buried. It's too hard. I'm sure it never left his mind as it was buried in the earth. But no, 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 it's, it's where it should be. This way it's safekeeping. Nobody will know it's there. I know he knew where it was, and I know he thought about it, but he wasn't doing what he was supposed to. 
So here's the response. Here's the accountability. The master responds by using the servant's own reasoning against him. Matthew 25, 26, and 27. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. There's a huge lesson here. Uh, Jesus is comparing small movements in the right direction. He's comparing those to no movement at all. And he indicates that we need to at least keep moving, at least do something, at least be somewhat proactive, at least head in the right direction. See, this one-talent servant helps us to see that here we're presented with a choice. And the question is, what will I do with what God has given me if I am a one-talented servant? And Jonathan, this is a tough question because you had talked about before you'd mentioned the, the idea, idea of comparison and how difficult that is. And when you're the one talented individual, the one talent person, and you look at the, 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 those with five or two, you say, well, gee, I'm not as good as them. I can't be expected to do what they can do. And it's really easy to take your foot off the gas and then forget where the gas pedal is entirely because you've compared yourself and you've compared yourself right out of your own ability. And that's what we don't want to go there. So we have to look at that and say, according to my ability, I, and you, you take the others and you put them out of your mind and say, Jesus has given me this. I can work with this because he knows because he gave it to me. He knows I can't. So we can choose activity. We can choose effort. We can choose discipline. Let's read Romans 12, 1 to illustrate. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is one of my favorite verses. We often use this scripture to share with those that are new and wanting to follow in Jesus' footsteps. But it's really speaking to brethren who have already been given their lives, uh, given their lives to serve the Lord. This reminds us to rededicate ourselves to him. And, you know, Jonathan, we were talking about this before the podcast tonight. How often do you and I both go back to this verse ourselves and say, hmm, be a living sacrifice. Hmm, got to remind myself. Exactly. And, you know, and I've heard somebody, I don't know who said this, but somebody said, you know, the problem with a living sacrifice is it always crawls off the altar. <laughs> and I love that because that's a challenge that we all have to face every day. Get back on the altar. Use the talent that, that Jesus gave you to glorify him, to do the work that he knows you can do. On the other side, the consequences of inactivity and avoiding assigned responsibility were severe. They were to lose the opportunity and standing that you were trusted with, and you lose those things to those who were most worthy of that trust. And the master proclaims that in the parable in Matthew 25, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Well, Rick, that's not fair. Of course it is. Of course it is. This servant had been deeply trusted to manage the master's wealth. 
not just a few dollars. He managed a portion of the master's entire wealth. That's what the parable says while the master was away. He in no way fulfilled that responsibility. He chose to not do what he was capable of doing. We don't want to go down that road and choose that. If we're being called to follow Jesus, God's perspective is that we are capable of fulfilling our responsibilities or he wouldn't have called us. And see, that's the point, Jonathan. That's the whole point. If you are called of God through Christ and you say, well, I don't think I can. Why? Inevitably, it's because you are comparing or expecting something that you think is going to be beyond your ability. Here's the newsflash. This parable is telling us that God would not call you unless you were capable of fulfilling that call. So it's a matter of faith to say, I will take the next step knowing that God through Christ is going to help me in my feebleness. And yes, maybe I am a one-talent individual. You know what? Faithfulness can be there for you. It's just a matter of doing what your ability shows. And Romans 12 verse 2 really amplifies this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. Remember where that one talent person put that talent? Buried it in the earth. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed instead. Do the work for Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 30, is a very uh, sad end result of this. Throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, a lot of Christians look at those phrases and think, whoa, that must be hellfire. Nope. Okay. The symbol of outer darkness is to be taken as a contrast to entering into the joy of the Lord. Outer darkness is to be surrounded with worldly influence. That's what it means. This was fitting for this servant. For where did he hide the one talent? In the earth. So he would naturally be a part of that. This is the place where outer darkness exists. For more on the weeping and gnashing of teeth, go to episode 869, Do the Fires of Hell Come from God, part one. Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the CQ app and enter the episode number into the search bar. That's episode 869. So, it's important to understand that this servant was still a servant. It doesn't say you're no longer my servant. Notice that. It just says he, he has to suffer the consequences of his actions because he did not act in accordance with my will. So look, if we have been acting this way, if we have been making the mistakes of that one talent servant, folks, it's not too late. You can change your course, but you have to make the decision. And how do you begin the change of course? Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, Rick... If this one talented individual was faithful with his one talent and produced a second one, are we saying he will receive a reward according to his ability, like the two or the the five talented ones? Exactly. The same reward. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So how do we get back on track if we're off track? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing, Jonathan. Jesus is our advocate, right? He's also the master that looks so mean. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, the, he's actually the one that, that stood to forgive us of our sins. So we go to him and we say, I've made mistakes. And then we work at putting things back in order so we can work to, to serve him to the best of our ability. It's, it's a wonderful comparison when you think about it. Let's, let's finish Val's story about uh, her dad, uh, Art, and some of the lessons that she learned from it. Here is a quote I really appreciate from a devotional called Decluttering the Soul by Aaron Grinnell. We all know that the enemy of what is best is something good. If we chase the feeling of significance that comes from prestigious ministry rather than serving for the glory of God, we miss the purpose. When we let go of our glory from past achievements, we are willing to serve as Jesus did in the small and unseen ways. Instead of putting our energy into preaching to the masses, we focused first on praying alone on the mountainside. Decluttering the trophies of kingdom work makes room for embodying the hands and feet of Christ. This is presently the big lesson in my life. I went from a successful teaching and coaching career to caregiver and companion, and now that my parents are gone, there's a hole. I sometimes struggle with looking back wistfully. It's time for me to declutter and ask God to show me what the best use of the talents he has given me and to remind me what ones I may have even forgotten about. And you know what Val is saying is take what the Lord has given me and go to work. And it changes sometimes in our lives. It changes and and, and, and we grow some more and things alter. The point is always move forward serving Jesus on a daily basis. Jonathan, finally, taking on the task of managing and growing talents, what's our final point? It is of massive value that we execute growth in our experiences, opportunities, and our literal talents and abilities in the Lord's service, whether we are a five, two, or one talent servant. The Lord expects growth. Growth only happens when we put it all on the line, knowing that Jesus knows what we are capable of. So it's not a matter of just Jesus just knowing what we're capable of, but believing that Jesus knows what we're capable of and believing that he's not going to leave us holding something that's, that's going to crush us and believing that if we're there by grace and oftentimes with the help of the brotherhood, we can rise above whatever the challenges are and just take steps forward. And sometimes, Jonathan, victory looks like defeat because there are things that don't happen perfectly in our lives. But it's okay, because if our ability is to serve God through Jesus and to work with whatever responsibilities he's given us, do it with your whole heart. Do it to glorify God, and even defeat is victory in the eyes of our Lord Jesus. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. So we've talked about talents. Last couple of weeks, we talked about the Beatitudes. Next week, very different kind of subject, but very relevant. Next week, should Christians be pro, pro I'm sorry, should Christians be practicing the laying on of hands? Talk to you next week. <laughs>